it was a very slow, very unsatisfying from an external observer's point of view process where you had it a little bit alive, a little bit dead, and at some point it sprouted legs and wings and, and started talking and making YouTube videos. And it was a gradual process. It was never that there was a boundary. And like same with viruses. I think a virus particle by itself is totally dead, but viruses are a bi marker of biosphere. They are a biomarker because you cannot have a virus without a biosphere. Same like with a piece of hair. Like a piece of hair from my head is dead as a nail, but it is a sign of a biosphere because you couldn't have that piece of hair without my head. So there's very rarely a clear line. Like it's super hard to say this particular biochemical system is living and this one's totally dead. The best we can hope for is everyone will look at it and say this wasn't alive. And as you added more functions, it became more and more alive. But I think you'll never get a system where everyone agrees on where that transition lies. What does it mean to be alive? Our origins are the horizon of our understanding. And as with the physical horizon, our approach brings us no closer. The more we learn, the more mysterious it all becomes. What if we're asking the wrong questions? Maybe life did not begin at all, but rather coalesced piecemeal, a set of properties contingent and convergent plural more than once. Maybe the origin of life is happening right now, just over the horizon, forming something new anew. Let's get into the weeds and see if we can find a continuity between biology and physics. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week we speak with Kate Adamala, synthetic biologist and professor at the University of Minnesota, about her research to produce synthetic mineral cells that are not technically alive, but can perform myriad biological processes. Along the way, the distant past and future meet. Can we build life? Or can we grow machines? Be sure to check out our extensive show notes with links to all our references at complexity.simplecast.com. Note that applications are still open for our Complexity Postdoctoral Fellowships. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu engage. Thank you for listening. Kate Adamala, it is a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thank you so much. Pleasure is mine. We're going to get into some crazy places in this conversation, but for that very reason, I want to start in something a little bit more uh, relatable, which is childhood and uh, early life, the backstory. Because, you know, this, this whole conversation is going to be kind of an attempt to understand the backstory of all of life in some respects. So we're going like all the way back to the early life form, yeah. childhood. 
like four billion right. years back. All right. How long do we have to record this? About an hour, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be highly compressed. But I, I love starting people with the researchers that we have on this show as human beings and the passion of their mind and how it is that they came to, to devote their lives in pursuit of the questions of their work. So, yeah. Devoting life in pursuit of something sounds much more grandiose and lofty than what it really is. It's, it's just, I'm lucky to have a job that I like and that most people can say that about their jobs. So that's the main motivation for, I think for most people to do science is it's super cool. We like doing it and we're very, very lucky to get paid for it. So that's kind of the biggest motivation is it's something that's fun to do and you can pay bills with it. And I always wanted to do science. So that's why I think I'm so lucky that I get to do it because I always wanted to do it. I always wanted to be an astrobiologist ever since I was a kid and I was watching science fiction movies. And there's always an exobiologist on board a starship. And then one day I realized that's actually a job you can have. Like it's possible to be a grown up and work as an astrobiologist. And then I was sold on it. And I didn't quite realize how difficult it's going to be and how much luck is involved in getting to the point where you can have your own lab. So it was kind of a dumb luck that I just decided, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I went for it without kind of considering all the things that can go wrong along the way. So it worked out and I'm very grateful for it. I liked science and I was never really good at anything else. So I went and did science and it's a lot of fun to do that job. So there's going to be two kinds of people in the audience, the people for whom this this question is going to seem almost pointless and the people for whom it's going to illuminate something really important. And the question is, why synthetic biology in service of a desire to be an astrobiologist? Because it's useful, but it's also fun. So when I was in undergrad and grad school, I did origin of life research. That's like the hardcore astrobiology, how life started on Earth, how life started on other planets. Can we look for life elsewhere? And I mean, that was a lot of fun. But that was completely, absolutely useless from in a practical sense. There is never going to be a drug that's going to come out of origins research. There is never going to be a therapy. There's never going to be a life safe. There's never going to be any benefit to the economy. There's never going to be anyone who's going to say, this saved, this changed my life. Once we send astronauts to space, origin of life research is not going to help them to survive in space. So that was this foundational, extremely satisfying, but useless part of science. And I enjoyed doing it up to the point when I realized I would like to do something that's actually, in addition to being fun for me, is also useful to you know, saying useful to the society sounds, again, a little grandiose, but I just kind of wanted to do something that other people will agree is worth doing. And so then I went and did a postdoc in neurobiology, in a very hardcore synthetic neurobiology. That's extremely useful. There's a ton of drugs coming out of it, but it was also not as exciting. Well, I mean, it kind of surprises me. I, I find that you actually say a lot of things about your work when I've heard you speak about it that surprise me. And we'll get to some of that later in the conversation. But it's so clear that your work does 
have bearing on helping us sort of form the constraints within which we can think about questions of the origin of life and all of this stuff that, I mean, either you're just completely singular in your ability to reconcile the sort of useful and useless, or perhaps you're just not giving the utility of this kind of fundamental theoretical work as much credit as I'm inclined to give it by virtue of being a propagandist for a a fundamental research organization. (laughs) But just to anchor this a little bit, there's a quote that you and your co-authors start a piece with at MDPI Life. And we'll get to this paper later, but I just want to, you cite Richard Feynman, who says, what I cannot create, I do not understand. And to me, that's where it all kind of, that's where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. So, I mean, really where where I want to go in this conversation with you is to look at the work that you're doing on synthetic cells and then to, from that place, sort of back into questions about the origins of life and, and not just the origins, but like really like the, the, the origins of like specific uh, processes, traits, characteristics that we take for granted as ubiquitous now in living systems and how you've managed to kind of you're reverse engineering them in these synthetic systems. And so, yeah, I'd just like to, I mean, maybe what we should do is, is start with some definitions, right? Precisely what is it that you're actually doing in the lab? And what are we talking about when we're talking about synthetic cells? What, what are they and what aren't they? They are cell-like structures. So they have a membrane, they have metabolism, they have a genome. They are not alive, at least not currently. And the goal of our work is to make them alive. They're not right now. And I know you're gonna next your next follow-up question will be about the definition of life. So I'm already gonna say there isn't a good one. And I can mm-hmm. talk about definitions of life for hours and I can show you why every single one is flawed and we do not have a good definition of life. Synthetic cells are depending on what glasses you put on. They're either a very practical utilitarian bioreactors. So they're basically little biological factors. They're little soap bubbles because that's what they are. They have a membrane that's very much like a soap bubble membrane. So they're soap bubbles with enzymes inside them. So that's the practical approach. Or they are the simplest possible lifelike systems that have some but not all functions of life. And that's more of the foundational basic researcher glasses. When you look at them, you want to study basic fundamental properties of life. What does life need to do life? How does a genome replicate? How does a cell grow? How did a cell start? So the synthetic cell in and out of itself doesn't care how you describe it. It just does its thing. And depending on who asks or who pays the bills, we can either say they are little bioreactors and They've been used in a lot of practical applications already, including biomedical applications. They've been shown to shrink tumors in live mice. They've been shown to grow vasculature in live tissues. So they can be used as smart drugs, smart biofactories. But they can also be used to do foundational research. They can be used to study the history of life and the future of life too. We can evolve them beyond what natural current life can evolve 
And I realized I didn't actually answer. You were probably hoping for a, like a simple answer. Synthetic cell is, and here's a nice definition, but there isn't one. Actually, no, that's great because, I mean, you know, it's my tendency to just swan dive into the philosophical here. And, and there's something that drew my attention in a paper that you co-authored led by Wakana Sato, Synthetic Cells and Biomedical Applications in uh, Wires Nanomed Nanobiotechnology that you talk about salient features and life-like behaviors. And so this is useful just as a framing because what all of this suggests is that for most of human history, it seems like people have thought about this in terms of trying to find an essence, right? Yes. Or, you know, something, something that divides the living from the non-living. And here you point to characteristics like directed localization, sense and respond behavior, gene expression, metabolism, and stability, right? That's, yeah. So what we're talking about is actually a bouquet of features that thinking about life in this way puts us closer to this perspective that seems pretty widespread or, or here at SFI, which is that there isn't like living and non-living. It's a spectrum. Right. That we're talking about a continuum yes. of traits that it's, it's modular. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting in, in your work is that you're poking at questions about, for instance, the conditions whereby you can simulate and observe like competition between these synthetic cells, but you're not seeing evolution. Yes. You're not seeing cell replication necessarily. And so this is a this is something that I would love to hear you disambiguate because again, these are things that we just take for granted being four billion years deep in the evolution of the biosphere, that they all come together. This work, again, it lends something to being able to ask these these questions about the very, very early Earth because Origins of Life as a Discipline seems haunted by this problem of the improbability of life, where it, what it seems like you're saying in your work is that it's a mistake to think that there was just sort of like a moment when this happened. Yeah. It's not very satisfying because I know a lot of people would really like to see a hard line. This is dead. This is living. But that's not the case. And the more we learn about life, the more we're discovering that it's really a gradient, it's a spectrum, it's a continuum. You know, just like it used to be with humans, people used to think that you're alive and then you get dead. And then as the medicine progressed, we discovered that there is a lot of states in which a human can be like a Schrodinger's cat, sort of alive, sort of dead. And that's why all those different clinical definitions of death arrive. And that's why people can be artificially kept alive. All of those kind of boundary conditions where someone is in some aspect alive and in some, some aspects not alive. And the same applies to every other living form. If you take a living cell and you grind it up and burn it, then sure, there is a clear line. It's been alive and now it's dead. But if you think about the process of making a living cell from components, there is no clear line. There is never going to be a case in which you can look at it and say, this is definitely dead and this is definitely living. 
as much as we would like to have a line like that, there just isn't. There's always going to be a cell or a cell-like entity that has some functions of life, but not all of them. And at which point you decide. That's why our field pretty much adopted the Potter Stewart definition of life, which is, I will know it when I see it. Um, that's a quote from a Supreme Court justice that was originally used in a very different context, but we use it to say, once we create something in the lab that performs all of the functions that we commonly expect out of life, then most people will look at it and say, yeah, that's probably a life. But it's not going to be the satisfying, like one day I go to the lab, I do some pipetting and out comes a cell and waves to me and says I'm alive. That would be super satisfying, but it's never going to happen. So just to give people a sense for what this, like, let's get into the weeds here a little bit. And I want to ask you about this uh, 2013 paper you led with Jack Sostak, non-enzymatic template-directed RNA synthesis inside model protocells. This is a system where this does certain things, it doesn't do other things. And I found this particular paper, again, really interesting because it, it seems to me, and this is, I don't want to jump ahead, but... I just want to know, like, I want you to know that where I want to take our conversation here ultimately is that it seems like research like this starts to provide us with contextual clues about the ancestral environments, the prehistoric environments in, that enabled some of these chemical processes to occur. And there's some some weird nuance in this paper that seems like, again, to, to bring it back to astrobiology, it seems to like it helps us sort of narrow our search field, at least in terms of understanding how and where to look for life chemically similar to our own. Yes, that's key, chemically similar. So tell us about this paper and about what you and Jack were working on here, please. So what we did there is we demonstrated that RNA world is possible inside a compartment. That sounds super simple. But that was one of the biggest kind of unsolved questions about the origin of life. And as you emphasize, this, is on, this only applies to this very narrow set of conditions of terrestrial life. So how probiotic evolution could have looked like on Earth and how it could look like with the same components on another planet with liquid water. So we're not talking about some crazy life. We're talking about wet, warm life as we are wet, warm life. And so what we did there is People speculated that pretty much since the 80s, the first genetic material and the first enzyme in evolution of life was RNA. And we have a lot of evidence that supports that. For example, to this day, every single life form on Earth uses an RNA catalyst to make all of our proteins. Everyone knows what a ribosome is. It's this machine that makes proteins. But ribosome is actually an RNA enzyme. The catalytic core of the ribosome is an RNA. There's a whole bunch of peptides around it, but the business end is RNA. And so that shows that the RNA was crucial in the origin of life. It was crucial to get started. And we also knew that all life on Earth, as we know it right now, has membranes. And how did those membranes start? That's a very good question. And there is a very plausible way to imagine how membranes started, and that is take fatty acids at the right pH, which happens to be physiological pH, what we know now as a physiological pH, they just self-organize into membranes. How convenient, right? The problem was, though, 
that RNA to do anything needs divalent cations, specifically magnesium. These days it's magnesium. It used to be iron, but these days it's magnesium. Any divalent cation will do. Now, those membranes, those very probiotically plausible fatty acid membranes, when they even smell a divalent cation, they precipitate. It looks like cottage cheese. When you take a sample of liposomes, those prebiotically plausible liposomes like they could look on early earth, it's a nice kind of a milky uniform solution. You show them a divalent cation, you add even a little bit of magnesium to that sample, they all just precipitate. It looks like cottage cheese. So basically your membranes are gone. And so this was a unsolved problem. How could membranes form and at the same time this RNA world hypothesis, which was pretty much acknowledged that that's how life as we know it started, how could those two things come together? So how could we have cells, primitive cells, with RNA doing anything useful inside? And so that's the question we answered in this paper, is we demonstrated that it is possible to have an RNA do its thing inside a vesicle that was prebiotically plausible, which means it could have originated on an early earth. And like with all origins research, we're not saying this is exactly how it happened. Until the time machine is invented, we will never be able to say that's exactly how it happened because we don't have a sample of that probiotic environment. But we do have now a plausible scenario, and that's the best we can ask for in this field. We have a plausible scenario that says that's how it could happen. And another really cool thing about this work was that the molecule that ended up being the one that makes it possible is citric acid. If you took any biochemistry, you will recognize that citric acid is a base molecule of the most ubiquitous energy cycle, the citric acid cycle. Every organism, every breeding organism on Earth right now uses citric acid to generate their energy, to regenerate their energy. What a nice coincidence. What the molecule that was needed for the original prebiotic probiotically plausible membranes to coexist with the prebiotic genome of RNA happens to be the molecule that's also at the core of existing metabolism right now. It's very elegant. It's almost too elegant, if you ask me. If, you know, if someone speculated that this is going to be the case, I would say this would align too perfectly, and yet this worked. So that's why I'm really happy about that work, because it kind of put together those three different essential parts of metabolism, the genome, the compartment, and here's citric acid. And once it's there, we might as well use it to make energy later in evolution. So I'm really glad that you brought up the, it's almost too perfect thing, because one of the last things that you discuss in this paper is, uh, I don't quote you here, in the absence of a prebiotic citrate synthesis pathway, it is of interest to consider prebiotically plausible alternatives to citrate that could potentially confer similar effects, such as short acidic peptides. So again, the lines seem to converge on the horizon, but you're also implying here that the question is, where is the citrate even coming from in this prehistoric context? And if we're talking about a system that is so simple, it's not really doing manufacturing at the level of a living cell as the way, you know, in the way that we think about it now, yeah. then 
it begs the question of what kind of environments might be providing citrate or might be providing peptides that would act in its place. So that's one of two questions I have for you about kind of like reverse engineering the ancestral environment in which this is all happening. So like, what are your thoughts on that? So citrate is absurdly simple. The fact that we right now don't have a probiotic way of making it doesn't mean one doesn't exist. It just means the chemists were too lazy to work on it. Guys out there, please prove that citrate can be made probiotically. We've discovered under probiotic conditions a synthesis of molecules that are much more complex than citrates. We can make whole nucleotides under probiotic conditions. So saying we don't currently have a way to make citrate probiotically doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means no one went and bothered to do it. I still strongly believe that there is a way to probiotically make citrate, just someone actually has to show it. And then there are many peptides that can behave like citrate. Dipeptides that have two side chains on both ends that kind of mimic the citrate carboxylic acids, kind of hugging the molecule. That's how citrate works. It basically hugs the magnesium molecule with its carboxylic acid ends. So you can have dipeptides or even tripeptides that do chelate little molecules of cations. For example, people that take magnesium supplements probably are familiar with supplements that come in a form of, for example, magnesium glutamate. That's a magnesium that's chelated by an amino acid. And so that's absolutely possible. And we know that amino acids are probiotically possible all the way since the Miller-Urey experiments. So we know that amino acids were abundant on probiotic earth. We know they're abundant in space. We know they exist in interstellar clouds. So making amino acids is not difficult. Combining amino acids into dipeptides and tripeptides is also probiotically plausible. You just need to heat them up and dry them, and they're going to polymerize. So either citrate was available right from the beginning, or there was something else that had this huggable side chains that could surround a magnesium. I mean, you know, again, this totally speculative, but there is a kind of recurring strain or theme in evolution that uh, things start out kind of, uh, you know, they, they start out kind of unnecessarily complicated. And then the selection pressure winnows things down to a fighting trim. So in a yeah. way, it almost makes sense that it would have been an abundant, but kind of energetically messy situation. And that citrate is something that maybe was like stumbled on later as like an improvement on yes. this kind of... And thing. once citrate was around, then we might as well use it for something else. That's another trait of evolution is once something's around, let's reuse it. Yeah. So, okay. So there's another piece in this, in this paper I want to address before we move on. And that's this, uh, you were in the, uh, the monolith monologues that we did here at, at SFI. And so was uh, Jeremy England. I will link to this. It was great. It was like a who's who thing where everybody took turns and passed these, this conversation around. And Jeremy is one of these folks that has been working on articulating the theory around, you know, non-equilibrium processes and, and life being 
calling back to Ilya Prigogine's work on dissipative structures that like life is a pattern that forms in response to the flow of energy through an environment. And so you say in this paper that you were able to achieve the results that you did by mimicking the flow of external solution of fresh monomers over vesicles. You have to do it in this study by the periodic dialysis of modern model protocells. But like going back to that, again, to that question of ancestral environment, it does seem like it would sort of restrict the search, right? So there are these different candidates for the location of the origin of life. It's kind of like hilarious how heated this debate is between like the the deep sea vent people and the warm little pond, like geothermal pool people. But I'm curious whether you feel like this skews that weights things towards one side or another of that debate. Like, would it be easier in a geothermal pool to achieve the kind of results that you've achieved in this? Or or is it a wash? (laughs) I actually, one of the reasons why I love the results we got is because it is a wash. It does not help either side. And I personally don't have a side in this debate because I'm friends and I respect people on both sides. I love hydrothermal vents and I love warm little pond. I also, you know, there's a third very vocal side, which is hydrothermal, but fresh water. So when people normally, when people talk about hydrothermal vents, they talk about sea, they talk about salt water, but there's also ways to get hydrothermal in the fresh water like Yellowstone. Um, and so there are many ways of doing it. And all we're asking is, keep the water flowing and you can do that in any way as long as there's water and heat involved so every possible probiotic environment could give you those conditions and we also don't answer the question of free-floating versus minerals because again as long as you flow me some monomers over my vesicles i'm happy and that can be done under all of those conditions. So in a way, that, that paper was really um, annoying for a lot of people that were hoping that it would <laughs> settle the debate because it didn't. It just shows that it's possible to do it under all of those conditions. Okay, awesome. So from there, you did this other paper with Jack Sostak, competition between model protocells driven by an encapsulated catalyst in nature chemistry in, in 2013. This is another one where reading this, I almost get a sense for the piecemeal innovation of the traits that we now bundle under the, the heading of life. And if you can just give us a little exposition on this paper before I dive into it with you, please. So the one of the hallmarks of life that people often cite is evolvability. So ability to compete with others for resources and winning, winning defined as growing bigger, growing faster, based on the guts that you have, what's inside you. And in this case, in the case of that work, we showed that this extremely simple, dumb peptide, it's a tiny little peptide. It's not even, I, I, I feel like I'm a fraud even calling it as a pep, it peptide. It's just a dipeptide, two amino acids linked together. That provides advantage to synthetic cells. They can compete. They can literally eat resources away from those poor little cells that have none of that dipeptide. 
And this is the absolute simplest possible example of the survival of the fittest, of the competition. It's not heritable, which is why you cannot really call it Darwinian evolution in the sense that we understand Darwinian evolution as, as heritable traits, because those peptides are not genetically encoded, but they do exist. And if you imagine making them on a template of something else, if the cell has the ability to make those dipeptides, it can grow faster. If something can grow faster, then it can make more offspring, and then it takes over the population. So that was the biggest selling point of that paper, is something so ridiculously simple, a dipeptide can impart enough advantage on a population of cells that they grow faster and they grow and compete for resources. They eat faster, basically. So just to situate this as you do in this piece, this is reflecting on and adding necessary nuance to an earlier way of thinking about an earlier model in which you have this competitive growth between RNA replication, mutations that led to greater replicase activity would result in a more rapid increase in internal RNA concentration and internal osmotic pressure, faster vesicle swelling, all of the stuff that you just said. But you make the point that this model suffers from the lack of a plausible mechanism for the division of osmotically swollen vesicles. Yeah. So like, that's, that's the thing that I was like, wait a minute, you know, you, you, you need to have not just cell growth, but replication and you can yes. have cell growth without replication. And that's still an unsolved problem. We still have no freaking idea how those things could self replicate. Actually, that's a very important distinction. We can replicate them, but they do not self replicate. That's a big difference. And that's a difference in the, all current origins and synthetic cell research. We can replicate those guys by forcing them either through a little filter or through minerals, but they do not self-replicate. And that's one of the biggest kind of a milestones or boundaries. If you ask most people what would be the biggest line if they had to draw a line between life and non-life, a lot of people would say self-replication. That's also flawed. That argument is flawed because, for example, I do not self-replicate. Neither do you. <laughs> so we're not alive by that definition. If self-replication is required for life, then we're all dead. That's too bad. But in this particular case of that, that dipeptide competition, we just showed that they grow faster. If you then, for example, extrude them, so artificially divide them into daughter vesicles, the ones that grow will make more kids, will make more daughters. I don't know why vesicles are always daughters. When you replicate vesicles, you always call them daughter vesicles. There's no son vesicles. So replication is essential, but it doesn't always have to be self-replication. Hmm. So, okay. So I, I want to linger here on the point that you just made, because I loved hearing people take you to task on this in the recent multiple life workshop at SFI, you know, when you said, where well, they're like, well, why not alive? And you answered, because we have to tell it to divide. Yeah. To me, that, that's my personal boundary. If we yeah. have to tell it to divide, then it's not alive. And a lot of people disagreed with me at that workshop. They said it's already alive. Yeah. But I mean, but if, I mean, it's, I mean, to what you just said, 
And I remember getting into an argument with my high school biology teacher about this when, you know, she was, she was not one of these life is a spectrum kind of people. And she was trying to impart on us that viruses are not alive. And I was like, well, okay, now wait a minute. Cause like it gets to this key issue around context and dependence on context. You know, I think about the essay that David Wolpert wrote for our COVID transmission series, where he was talking about the way that the COVID virus leverages external computation of a cell in order to achieve its goals in much the same way that we rely on cloud computing now to assist in in human cognition. And that everywhere you look, living processes are running as fast and cheap as they can by offshoring as much of the labor as possible is like one you know one kind of dangerously general way of thinking about this but again that gets to this question about people tend to think about the emergence of a biosphere from a geosphere but and there's another way of thinking about it and I'm curious about where you sit with all of this that it may be less that the origin of life was about a fundamental shift in the capacities of the geosphere, more about the concentration of behavior that was already happening in a kind of diffuse way in the environment Mm -hmm. and a focusing of these characteristics into Mm -hmm. compartmentalized lineages. And so again, is this question of like, well, does it even make sense to define life in opposition to non-life when one of the things that, that you know, if you look at papers like the information theory of individuality puts individuals on this spectrum where you've got, even on the end of the spectrum where you're talking about individuals in a kind of conventional sense as being defined by lineages of information that are passed on through processes of inheritance, they're still to some degree like scaffolded by these relationships with their environment. And this idea, which is sort of like almost, I don't know what you call it, like a transhumanist fantasy, that we're ever going to fully escape our, you know, that we will be able to become completely self-contained and self-reliant just seems to be constantly challenged by work like yours and the work of your colleagues. So again, this is a less a scientific question maybe than a philosophical question, but in light of all of this stuff, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps what I'm really pointing to is the question of, you know, does this shift in our framing change the question that we're even asking in the first place when we're asking about the origins of life and, and, you know, how to think about the processes of life. Definitely. It used to be that people were hoping to be able to define a moment when life just sprouted. So like you had a dead planet on Monday and then you have a living planet on a Tuesday and that never happened. We're more and more, we're working on it. We're realizing that there was no hardcore transition like that. It was a very slow, very, unsatisfying from an external observer's point of view process where you had it a little bit alive a little bit dead and at some point it sprouted legs and wings and and started talking and making youtube videos and it was a gradual process 
it was never that there was a boundary. And like same with viruses. I think a virus particle by itself is totally dead, but viruses are a biomarker of biosphere. They are a biomarker because you cannot have a virus without a biosphere. Same like with a piece of hair. Like a piece of hair from my head is dead as a nail, but it is a sign of a biosphere because you couldn't have that piece of hair without my head. So there's never or there's very rarely a clear line. Like it's super hard to say this particular biochemical system is living and this one's totally dead. The best we can hope for is everyone will look at it and say this wasn't alive and as you added more functions it became more and more alive. But I think you'll never get a system where everyone agrees on where that transition lies. So there are two points that came up reading this that I'm really curious to explore with you. One of which is actually three, three points that came up reading this. You mentioned earlier that there is this, this question of cell reproduction that dangles beyond the answers about cell growth. And uh, you, you say in this paper, you know, we observed that low levels of phospholipids can drive the competitive growth of fatty acid vesicles in a manner that circumvents the problem by causing growth into filamentous structures that divide readily in response to mild shear stresses. So like this, in thinking about what it means, the origins of replication and, you know, the origins of like death and these kinds of things, and, and thinking of them perhaps less as chemical processes or processes that are living by nature, but it, it, again, it bridges things like the shear forces that break rocks in half and being like, these are mechanical strains. And so you get, you know, from there, it seems like we're, you know, we're kind of groping towards a bridge between physics and biology that we can actually walk across. And it will always be a gradual transition. It will never be like there is a gate on that bridge. It's always going to be a, just a slow leisurely walk. And I think people just have to get get okay with it. I know a lot of people would like to see the moment we first made life in the lab or the moment life started on Earth. But it was never like that. It was always just this very gradual process. So to that point, there's another kind of curious thing in this paper, which is that you note that the dipeptide that you used as a catalyst in this, at least in your system, is not heritable. So you've got it. It's again, it's a citrate thing. It's being supplied yeah. by the environment, yep. but they have not internalized that order. They yes. haven't folded it into their own. That's why it's not heritable. That's why it's, that's yeah. why it's not true Darwinian evolution because cells just happen to get lucky to have this catalyst, but they don't make it themselves. And the offspring doesn't make it either. That's funny. Maybe I'm drawing to tenuous of an analogy, but I, you know, our former chairman of the board, Michael Mobison has written about in finance about the, the difference between strategy and luck, you know, and a lot of like oh. a lot of our, like the economics work, I think I'm trying to think Scott Page, I think, and others have challenged this idea of, of meritocracy because like the story is that people are, yeah. again, people are self-made and it's like, well, no, you know, so not. much of it is the conditions of birth. Matt Jackson is another one of these people that it's like, actually it's real estate is location, location, location. 
So yeah. that seems like that was true from the very start. From the very beginning, there were the, the Lord cells and the peasant cells that were being eaten. <laughs> Uh, okay, so um, to and then one thing that actually I do think is to make this a little less ridiculous. You mention in this paper that competitive growth happens in conditions with like a low salt concentration, but then yep. mycel uptake happens in conditions with a high salt concentration. So this gets us back to the question: Yes, of does this does this result answer or start to answer? where we ought to be looking, you know, because I know that like when you're talking about freshwater geothermal hypothesis, like that's Deemer and and Bruce Damer are one of the teams working on that. And a a crucial feature in their model is that the hot springs are drying out periodically. And so they're actually dilute and highly concentrated. The cyclicity is key to their model. And I don't really know how that works with a like a deep sea vent where everything is in a kind of a continuously you're just surrounded by the ocean all the time. So do you think that this do you think that this is a point in favor again or do you think that there are ways in which a deep sea vent model can accommodate and address this particular challenge? Again to the frustration of people that have one favorite location there are ways to build that model in every possible location. Because, for example, oceans have currents of different salinity as well. There are parts of the ocean where there are those currents that have different salinity, different concentration of different ions, different concentration of organic molecules. So it's not impossible to imagine that around a deep sea vent where there is a lot of current going on anyway, there could be areas that have lower salinity and areas that have higher salinity. That particular scenario is easier to, because it's already built into Dave Deemer's uh, freshwater vent theory, but that doesn't mean that deep sea people throw in the towel because it's possible for them to imagine that scenario too. And that's why I cannot say which one is better, which one is more likely. It would be really funny if none of them, it, it would be Really funny if actually all of them can work and life actually started in a few of those places simultaneously and then they fought it out like there was this first great battle of cells where they all met and ate each other. I mean, that doesn't seem totally implausible based on just the fact that, you know, you think about in human history, the, the just how very common it is that something is invented simultaneously in multiple locations at the same time. Like Thomas Edison being the 23rd person who applied for a patent on the light bulb, right? Kevin Kelly actually has a great chapter in in his general audience book, What Technology Wants, about this particular thing. And again, it speaks to the, you know, challenges to a kind of a modern framework or a modern concept of the individual because his point is that there's something about an idea whose time has come again to your earlier comments about life using pieces that are just lying around and then repurposing them that it may be it does it all the time it doesn't seem beyond the pale at all at least for me to consider exactly what you said it actually seems more likely than coming up with it once and be done I mean, life is lazy. We're all lazy and that's a good thing. So if you can reuse something that 
already existed. Why wouldn't you? Now, that's kind of funny because at the Multiple Life Workshop, you were making a point about the possible applications of your work to agnostic astrobiology, you know, to thinking beyond just the one lineage that we can study here on Earth, you know, that we can create alternatives. And you said there, uh, biology is incredibly boring because it all comes from the same place. So that may seem kind of paradoxical at first, but it just draws attention to the way that like in complex systems thinking, you've got multiple different points of focus at different scales or like different ways of coarse graining something, right? So that you zoom out enough and you're talking about an N of one and you zoom in and far enough and you're talking about multiple competing points of origin. And these are not statements that are actually in conflict with each other. Absolutely. And you see that at every level of biochemistry. If you were an alien coming to the solar system, you look at terrestrial life and like, okay, it's all the same. It's super boring. It all uses the same molecules. So it's all one life form. But if you're a dog person and you look at a white golden retriever versus red golden retriever, completely different personalities, the same breed, but completely different dogs. And so it all depends on how deep down you look at it. Yeah. So to that point, Michael Lockman likes to think about this, you know, lineages of information and when we had Sarah Walker on the show, she cited him and how he likes to talk about how, you know, he is the one holding the baton for like a nearly 14 billion year old informational lineage. And so in that way, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this, in that way, no matter how alien the chemistry of a synthetic system that we're talking about here, that there is a sense in the way that like uh, Chris Kempis and David Krakauer talked about it in their multiple paths to multiple life paper, or the way that Hans Moravec talks about machine intelligence and robotics as mind children in his book, that no matter how wacky the artificial life forms we can create, they are nonetheless part of this informational lineage that shares a common ancestry with everything else on earth. Because we made them. Right. So there's that you can never actually escape your own perspective kind of thing going on there. So I'm curious how you hold the tension between those two statements, the Mm -hmm. statement of we are, you know, we can learn something about something that's fundamentally alien. And also we're basically just creating more of ourselves. Both are true. And I'm glad you brought up Sarah's work because she touches on that a lot in her work. It's, it all depends on how, finely or coarsely you grain it how what are you looking for because you know there's this gravity well of life that we cannot escape because we're it and when we make a synthetic cell that looks completely different than our own cell it will still be a cell that fundamental thing that a guy looked at under the microscope 200 years ago and said oh this looks like this looks like a cell let's call it cell And when we make a synthetic cell, it's still going to be a cell. It's still going to have a membrane or some sort of a compartment. It's still going to have some sort of a genetic heritability. It's still going to make enzymes. So in a way, we're not actually reinventing a wheel from scratch. We're just building a wheel from a different material. And it's going to be a different wheel. It's going to spin differently, but it's still a wheel. So in that sense, we're incapable of making something that's completely different because we're not it. We don't even know if it's possible. 
And even now that we're you know, switching to intelligence done by computers, you'd think it would be fundamentally different, but it isn't because we made it. And the same with any form of artificial life. As long as our hands make it, it's going to look something like the life that we are, which is kind of depressing when you think about it. But what I liked about Sarah's statement on the show was that that is true. And yet the deeper we explore this stuff, the more general and more fundamental, you know, that we may like the, her question was about mathematics and like, are, is alien mathematics going to look enough like ours that we would be able to communicate with each other? Mm-hmm. And what I loved about her point was that Basically, the more deeply we know something, the more we will ultimately end up identifying with the alien. And so like in a way, her point was that as soon as we are capable of thinking of ourselves in this much less sort of limited and and parochial way, then whatever alien intelligences we encounter will no longer be alien by the time we encounter them. That, you know, this whole thing about ongoing research in animal cognition or in mycorrhizal networks in the woods, you know, and suddenly these things that seemed completely, you know, like that's not intelligence. And now it's like, well, they're two crows working together to solve a puzzle. Like how is, you know, like that's, so yeah. Yeah. That's almost the very definition of synthetic and alien. Yeah. So the last thing I want to, yeah, aliens are weird until they're not, right? It's sort of like when we're children and boys and girls, it's like, that's the alien. Oh, wait, that never goes away. Guys are still weird. (laughs) It's like, hopefully we grow out of that, or maybe not growing out of that is inhibiting our ability to communicate with extraterrestrials. Um, (laughs) We can communicate, but I still don't understand how... Do you want to keep the AC that low? How are you not all the time called? But I mean, but that's that's built into the sort of fundamental value of diversity in living yes. systems, right? You know, reservoirs Absolutely. of variation, you know? That's yes. why like sexual recombination exists in the first place, right? So we're a victim of our own success. <laughs> True. So, okay, so I want to cool down this conversation. Speaking of the AC, I want to cool down this conversation about 20 degrees and leave this where you kind of teased at the beginning of this episode with something, you know, more grounded and practical than these enormous abstract concerns, which is about the practical medical therapeutic applications of of the work that you're doing and you know how this work whether or not it solves for the origin of life or mm-hmm. discovery of extraterrestrial biology what value it confers to the way that we think about and we practice medicine so there's this paper that you co-authored synthetic cells and biomedical applications and this is just a fascinating tour of all of the reasons why your work should be funded. <laughs> and, Why do you think I wrote that paper? Mm, so I would love to hear, yes. So I'd love to hear you give us a little bit of a tour of why it is specifically that synthetic cells are such potent tools in the delivery of medicine and in other applications. It's because they're kind of a middle ground between too dumb and too smart. 
So 2-DUM is just a simple molecule that you inject into a patient and then it go does something, but you can't control it once you inject it because it's just a molecule. So for example, if you take ibuprofen, that molecule gets into your tummy, then gets into your bloodstream, goes wherever, screws up your liver in addition to helping your back pain. Then on the completely different end of the spectrum, you have those exceedingly smart drugs. For example, CAR T cells. They're your own cells that are taken out of your body, recombined, and then put back. And yeah, they cure cancer, but they also get in trouble because they get too enthusiastic and they give you leukemia. Because they, they're like, yay, let's now kill everything. And that includes yourself. And that's how leukemia is born. And so sometimes a drug needs to be smart because you want to be able to target it to a particular site. For example, if you have a lung tumor, it would be nice to take a drug that's only going to target your lung tumor and not make you lose hair and be nauseous and have all the other side effects. But if your drug is too smart, it's going to get in trouble. Again, like with dogs, if your dog is too smart, your dog's going to get in trouble because <laughs> he needs to have something to do. And so synthetic cells are kind of like a dumb dog in this comparison. They're trainable. You can, especially if they're food motivated, you can train them to follow directions, but they're not too smart. They're not going to get in trouble. So they're kind of a happy middle between completely not controllable, simple molecules and those very, very complex programmed cell-based therapies. And another reason why we need them is because the biomedical progress is actually extremely frustratingly slow these days. That it, there is this almost a reverse Moore's law happening in biomedicine right now. So I'm going to play the devil's advocate here because guy with a Jurassic Park tattoo grew up watching films like Blade Runner where they've got the programmed death of the replicants and the replicants, you know, end up killing the CEO trying to find a way to get it. So, I mean, here, and you, you actually do address this in another paper on the build a cell project, which we haven't even gotten to and is really, really cool. But you, you talk about, you specifically address this question of public concerns regarding synthetic cells. I'm hoping to get Ricard Soleil on the show soon. And one of the things that I want to talk with him about is that he, you know, he has this whole idea about engineering synthetic cells to help sort of terraform our planet, to fight runaway climate change. And you have also talked about the idea of life bombs, being able to drop cells and like seed biosphere and this kind of thing. So I'm curious, how have you thought through these questions about public concerns about the implications of your work and, and the possibility of unintended, but were it ever to happen, everyone would be like, I told you so. So yeah. you're the expert here. Why should I not be worried about this? First, you shouldn't be worried about this because we're not that good at it. I would love if my synthetic cells had the potential to leave the island and replicate on the mainland just by eating some handful of bees. But they can't. They're too primitive. They're not good enough to do that right now. And they won't be good enough for a very long time. And the simple reason is that there is a lot of competition. Life had 4 billion years to basically test every single competition scenario under terrestrial conditions. 
And we're making those fake cells in the lab that are not good at pretty much anything. So even when they self-replicate, they will not be robust. And that is a bug and a feature. It's a bug because I would love them to be more robust. But it's a feature because in competition with any highly evolved cell, the synthetic cells are meat. They will just be eaten. They have absolutely no chance. And there is no way to build robustness like that into synthetic cells the way we make them right now because, we, I mean, we, for one, we don't have 4 billion years. And so we can't test every scenario. We can't have those synthetic cells compete over, under every possible condition. So, for example, when you, when you think about biomedical applications, the cells that would be injected into a patient will just not have any self-replicating machinery. So it's not like a kill switch when you take away one thing that's needed for replication. It's a no circuits at all. There is not, no switch is needed because the circuit doesn't exist. They don't have anything that's needed for replication. So there is no way in hell they can replicate because they just don't have that hardware to work with to even start developing replication. And then when you think about building, for example, terraforming tools for Mars, they would be optimized under such different conditions than terrestrial cells that they probably wouldn't even be able to survive on Earth, no matter how hard we try. And then any kind of a bioreactor that you release into the environment, the biggest danger of that is not that that bioreactor will self-replicate and go on. It will be that it will pass on its genes, at least some of its genes. And that's a valid concern. And for that, we're working on right now on designing those circuits, on designing those kind of genomes in a way that this horizontal gene transfer doesn't happen. And that's something that our community works on. That's kind of a big biosafety, biosecurity focus on of our work is how to make those guys stay in their lane, how to make them not hmm. spread the goods. <laughs> and that draws heavily from other GMO research, people that made other genetically modified organisms that have been released to the environment. You know, we had those conversations ever since Ice Minus, and the world haven't ended so far. That all makes sense up to the point, but past performance doesn't guarantee future results. True. And given that your work is, you know, there's something kind of recursive going on here where, you know, you're identifying the primitives for evolutionary arms races. Like you're seeing yes. the inkling or the prequel to that. And being alive at a time of extraordinary rapid change, you know, like talking with Jeff West about the way that the social reactors of cities lead to these ex increasingly accelerated innovation crisis cycles. He's really worried are going to, we're not going to be able to avoid collapse. And, you know, the red queen evolutionary arms race thing does seem to accelerate. It brings you closer to the edge of the cliff faster. And so I'm, I'm you know, I'm curious, maybe not so much in the way that we were just addressing this, this problem with, with, you know, this, the kind of lifelike but non-living synthetic cells, but in terms of the success of finally being able to reproduce all of the conditions of, and actually make something that's alive. And then, you know, what that's going to mean when that becomes a part of the ubiquitous technological toolkit for our species. And you have, it's sort of like akin to the CRISPR question, right? Yes. When you have yes. like armies of people that are trying to pollute the ecosystem with competing gene drives, 
You know, like, how do we think ethically about that kind of question? We should not be doing it. Absolutely. And I mean, on one hand, I think humanity has better ways to kill ourselves. You know, we can drop a few nukes (laughs) and we're done. Um, So I'm less worried about synthetic cells or even gene drives being the civilization ending event just because we had the technology to wipe ourselves out or at least go back to the caves for what 70 80 years now so if it's gonna happen it's gonna happen and i won't care because i'll be dead the dangers of the bio any bio security risks are mostly in unintended uses and unintended consequences and you know the same for gene drives same crispr for any sort of thing we release to the environment we don't know enough to release something safely and you know we thought we know what we're doing when we were releasing rabbits and other animals in australia we know how that how well that turned out and so I'm always extremely cautious when I think about any environmental release because we've proven, and I know past performance is not an indicator, but we've proven that we suck at it. I feel like I'm sort of manic depressive in the bioethics conversation going from like horror to excitement and enthusiasm. It seems like what you're saying about something you said a moment ago about the your lack of concern about the release of synthetic cells because they would just be food for the biosphere that already exists seems to point to this this question of whether or not like we were addressing earlier the possibility of multiple points of origin of life and that you know again to just get sort of like lofty and philosophical here in the final stretch of this of this chat it seems like one of the implications of your work is that we might be completely wrong in assuming that there was one origin billions of years ago and that it's not something that's happening all the time and just getting snapped up before we can even observe it. Yes. That, you know, that there may be efforts, life may start to emerge and then it's just sort of devoured. Yeah. I think a lot of people would agree that that's absolutely plausible. That, that prebiotic evolution or at least very early evolution can be going on somewhere. And as soon as something emerges, it gets eaten, such as life. So that speaks to a bigger theme, that a thread through SFI work on incumbency and the suppression of innovation. Yeah. But I don't know if it's worth getting into that. I mean, the same thing would happen with synthetic cells. If we make a synthetic cell that's better in some way than natural cells, but it's not as robust. Even if we want it to take over, we release it and some bacteria will look at it and say, num, 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 and here's our synthetic cell gone before it even proves that it's better at that one thing. Like Betamax, right? It just fails in the market. Well, Kate, this has been really cool. You know, before we wrap this, I just want to give you the opportunity to stump build a cell. And if you have anything else that you want to point people to, to give you the opportunity to do that. So Build a Cell came from understanding that not a single lab or not a single country can and should build life from scratch. And because there's a lot of people that want to build synthetic cells uh, for different reasons, with different motivations, but we all have the same goal, we decided to start working together. And that's how it came to be, is we're an international community 
that's open to everyone. And by everyone, I really mean literally everyone. If you're a physicist or if you're a member of the public or if you're a teacher or if you're a biologist and you think current life is perfectly good enough, but you're curious about what possible fake lives could look like, that's what the community is for. And we are kind of an informal group of nice people that just get together and talks about how to make cells and how to make it safely. One of the biggest kind of goals of our community is to facilitate research that's shareable and safe. So when we do it, we consider all the limitations, we consider all the kind of shortcomings of current protocols, we develop new protocols. Awesome. So just in parting, I'd love to leave people with a sense of wonder and mystery and would like to know what is the most vexing slash inspiring unanswered question for you that we haven't already addressed in this conversation? Like what's the frontier? What giant question can you leave us with? My most fascinating question is what if, how could life look like that we can't even imagine right now? So if we make life from a completely different building blocks than the life we know it right now, how is it going to behave? Is it still going to evolve and fight for food and make babies? Or is there going to be some completely new property of life that we can't even think about because we've never done it? That's the biggest, most fascinating question for me is what life can do that we haven't seen done on Earth yet? That's a fine place to end this. Thank you so much, Kate, for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.